0: So, Amy, thanks so much for joining us for this episode of Bookable Space.
1: Thank you, Yvonne. I'm really, really pleased to be here. Oh, wonderful. So shall we just dive in?
0: Let's do it. Wonderful. Okay, so i really like to know, what led you to write The Potero Complex, and where did the idea for the book come from?
1: Well, I'm still a little bit astonished that, looking back at my notes, I seem to have conceived this idea in the very early weeks and months of the pandemic. And I wanted to, I realized we were living through something really historic. It began to feel that way pretty quickly. And I wanted to write something that where I could almost project the near future where we were coming out the other end of this thing and what would life look like and be like and feel like and what might be different. So it was a little bit of a kind of a thought exercise in a little bit of sort of mini future forecasting.
0: Oh, I love that. So with that in mind, could we have a reading, please?
1: Absolutely. And what I've decided to do is just start at the very beginning rather than bring you into the middle. So you're going to get a bit of a flavor for for what this is like. Missing, a teenage girl with lanky blonde hair and a sunburst tattoo on her cheek. The holographic posters, brighter than day itself, lit up the air on every block of Main Street. They were the first things Rags Goldner noticed as she and her partner, Flint Stan, arrived in Canary. The girl's name was Effie, and she was 16. Effie's pixelated image beamed down at Rags like a celebrity unaware that her 15 minutes of fame were up. Rags refused to give a damn about the missing girl, who, after all, she didn't know. Nor did she know much about the town, Canary, where the driverless share car She and Flint, had leased for their move, had brought them. But missing kids make news, and as Canary's newly imported one and only newspaper editor, Rags knew she'd be expected to do something about it, which meant she wouldn't control the news hole on day one, which meant all kinds of people would come at her to do one thing or another. Rags hadn't been in town five minutes, and already she could tell things were going to get complicated and complicated was the very thing she and Flint were trying to get away from. Damn all the politicians and peacekeepers and their gatekeeping bullshit, she thought. As the car made a final turn toward its programmed destination, Rags's twitch flared up. The muscles in her upper left cheek and the outer corner of her eye performed an uncontrolled little dance. Ah, crap, she said. Turning Main Street into Times Square won't help them find the girl. What a waste, and all that light pollution. She stretched her face, willing the twitch to stop. Flint held up his data phone and aimed it at one of the digital posters they cruised by. The static image of Effie sprang into augmented reality motion. She turned her head, blinked, and laughed. Stop doing that, Flint, "Rag said. Just don't. No way that girl out there somewhere is smiling. Don't get up, spun up so fast. Flint looked over at her for the first time in hours. Their connection was like a faulty wire fritzing on and off. Give yourself some room to ramp up, he said, putting his hand on top of her head in a familiar gesture. Simmer down. It helped. The twitching nearly stopped. We haven't even come to a full stop yet. Pace yourself. Well, look, Rex said. They've plastered her face everywhere, probably been like that for weeks. You think the story about this girl has gone cold, right? Flint said. What do you call that? Beat up. I'm guessing the story's beat up. The first thing I'm going to hear is that they want me to flog it some more. Remind me, why are we doing this? Let's not, Flint said, looking back down at his screen. Anyway, it was your idea. As the share car rolled noiselessly down Main Street, Rag saw just one person hanging around the deserted downtown. A woman standing on a corner who appeared to be waiting. For what? Rags wondered. As they slowly passed by, Rags caught a dead look in the woman's eyes. A block further on, Rags watched a man and a woman, both in shabby coats, as they appeared to argue, their faces contorted with anger. The man handed the woman a bicycle pump. She handed him, in return, a loaf of bread. What kind of town is this? That's the end of that.
0: Oh, it sounds like something sinister is going on in Canary. What a compelling read. So I'm really curious about your background as a journalist and how that informs the main characters world, because they're also a journalist. Where do those two paths, yours and your character, where do they differ
1: they differ in that Rags has to have I, – I was a journalist, and so I do know how to put a story together, how to write a headline, how to talk to other writers about, you know, putting a bunch of pieces together they're going to fit, how to write an op-ed, all these things that come up in the story. But because, because Rags is working on this small-town newspaper in this town that's maybe not quite up on, you know, the latest modern technology and so forth – she has to know more of the inner workings of publishing how a paper gets gets published and that's going to actually play an important role in the book so there's some mechanics that i actually had to do some research on to just make things seem real enough but as a journalist i did i was able to sort of understand what it takes to dig into a story although i i was certainly never in as morally Conflicted and high-stakes situation as she was on on the beats that I covered. <laughs> She's in more trouble than I was. <laughs> oh wow!
0: <laughs> well, that makes it a little bit more fun, then, doesn't it? <laughs> yes. Oh, wonderful!
1: So, could we have another reading, please? Absolutely. Let me just get myself over here. I'm just going to continue on right where I was. The share car parked curbside at 326 Main Street. For well over a century, the little brick building, sandwiched between other little brick buildings, had housed the Canary Current. A chatty little newspaper, the Current, as Rags knew from her research, printed anything and everything within the bounds of what people once called common decency about the town of Canary, a tiny hamlet in the northwest corner of Maryland, not far from the Pennsylvania border, the kind of town that flew under the radar for anyone who did not live there. The fact that the Canary Current was still a going concern in 2030 was astounding, even mysterious, and a key reason that Rags was here, though perhaps not the only reason. The paper survival was even more of a puzzle when one considered that the town itself, which had been shriveling for decades, was now skeletal. The pandemic, which everyone called the big one, had raged for nearly five years. It hollowed out an already hollowed out place, killing off over two-thirds of the elderly population living out their days in Canary. Those folks never knew what hit them, their dreams of slipping into gracious idleness on their front porch rockers, eating breakfast on the cheap at the town diner, destroyed in an agony of fever and blood. On Canary's rural outskirts, on their way into town, Rags had seen the crematorium, a hulking cinderblock rectangle erected for one single purpose, to incinerate the infected dead into piles of decontaminated black ash. She was sure Flint missed it, though it was very hard to miss, rising up from a flat expanse of undeveloped land, just as he'd missed seeing Effie until she pointed it out, like I'm his goddamn tour guide. Now nearly two years after the big one had been officially declared over. Rags suspected that Canary survivors were like a mouthful of missing teeth, families broken by a plague that took not merely the elderly, but also children and their parents with a seemingly vicious and terrifyingly random determination, with an emphasis on random. Survivors everywhere were known as luckies, though Rags only ever used that term in its most ironic sense.
0: The book is set in two places. It's set in Baltimore and also in the town of Canary, Maryland. And I know that you live in Baltimore. So what was writing Baltimore like for you? And what did you want to make sure you got right? I'm really curious about where you were free to imagine or reimagine the scene, the setting, and kind of like bringing Baltimore to life.
1: So in each of the books, in almost each of the books that I've written, each of the novels, Baltimore is a character with a different sensibility each time, depending on kind of just just what kind of book it is and what's going on. So in this book, I imagined just a tiny swath of the city, and there are passages later on that I, I think are meant to be, I hope they have the effect of meant to be quite chilling, about what it would be like if we were living, if you were living in a city, in this case, you know, Charles Street in Baltimore, where... People were literally dying on the street. I have such strong recollections about the the morgue trucks in New York as bodies were were brought out as hospitals were overflowing during covid and i i 'm not duplicating that per se, but this notion of what it 's like to live in a crowded city fairly crowded city where suddenly just the normalcy is is gone and 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 things are different and you feel like you 're kind of living in a nightmare and we all got a we all got a sense of that these past few years, and so I wanted to kind of bring that to the fore and bring that to life. And so it's that notion of just being on these downtown streets that I'm so familiar with. I did uh, create a couple of fictitious things where I, I invented a Trader Joe's where there isn't one. <laughs> <Thank you. laughs> but it was an inside joke for anyone from Baltimore who reads this, because we all want a Trader Joe's in the city and there isn't one. And so I put one in a particular neighborhood. Was <laughs> um, it prosperous? But it, well, in, in fact, in fact, it's part of a pretty harrowing scene where, first of all, I, I, I wrote this book a couple of years ago, but I actually predicted that we were going to have spiking inflation. So prices are through the roof, goods are scarce. And let me just say that there are people on the street who are extremely hungry and will, will do things in order to obtain food to feed themselves. So it's kind of a chilling, it's that notion of you, you're in a city that always seems, you know, safe and you can walk around a lot of it and then all of a sudden you know it's it's really not
0: so yeah. so there will be no trader joe's in in, in Baltimore now and now we know why <laughs> exactly so could we have our final reading please
1: yes absolutely and yet even in a near ghost town like canary in a still brittle economy, in a world where print media was a rare novelty, the ink-on-paper edition of The Canary Current lived on as, as quirky and creaky as Miss Havisham in The Attic. Each folded issue tossed at sunrise every Wednesday and every other Sunday into doorways and onto walkways by a young father and son living on gig income. Rags deliberately suppressed her own journalistic instincts when it came to figuring out how this newspaper managed to keep going years past its natural expiration date. Turning a blind eye to its improbable existence was both expedient and convenient for her. She knew that income from print ads, about as old-fashioned as you could get, was the sole reason the paper was able to keep going. It surely wasn't due to subscription revenue. But she didn't know why anyone would buy print ads in a tiny newspaper serving a dying community in a digital world. There'd be time, she figured, to get to the bottom of that. The main thing was that this improbable job as the Canary Currents editor came her way at a time when she and Flint were looking for an escape hatch that would take them away from the exhausting hysteria and suffocating autocracy that made post-pandemic big city living unbearable in countless ways They came to Canary in search of a simpler life, though Rags, if pressed, could not readily have defined what that would look like. Freedom from fear? Freedom to forget? She kept these notions to herself because she did not think Flint would admit to any of it, let alone acknowledge the possibility. Rags had worried before they arrived that an out-of-the-way place like Canary might have borne an influx of people seeking or imagining that this place would prove to be some kind of oasis. But from the little she'd seen so far, there was nothing oasis-like about this town. The garish and intrusive billboards of the missing Effie radiated an anxious thrum, nothing like a small-town welcome. That's the end.
0: Ooh, again, really sinister. Oh, Amy, so where would you like us to get the book?
1: The best place to find this book and anything else is really to go right to my website, which is amywrites.live. It's A M Y, W R I T E S dot live, and you'll see links for this book as well as some others that have come out and are and are coming out. And I think there's a link to the full free link to the full first chapter of this book as well there.
0: Oh, wonderful. Amy, thank you so much for joining us for this episode, for reading to us. You have such a lovely reading voice. And so it was such a treat to be read to by you. And thank, thank you, you for answering the questions. You're welcome. It's been a joy. I really appreciate you being our guest.
1: I've enjoyed it very much, too. Thank you.
0: Anytime.